0: From New York City, this is Mark to Markets. I'm your host, Mark Penziner. On this podcast, we discuss topics near and far from personal finance. Any questions or comments, I can be reached at mark.penziner at bernstein.com or call me directly at 212-969-6655. Maybe the biggest story in the market lately has been inflation, and I think it's appropriate and timely to do a deep dive on this single topic. To do so, I've invited in Chris Brigham. He's a senior research analyst in Bernstein's Investment Strategy Group. Chris, thanks for joining. Hey, thanks for having me, Mark. So I I think it's easy to get into the weeds on inflation, and I'm sure at some point we will get technical. But as a very broad overview, first question, many of our listeners, as you know, are thinking about their own private wealth. Why is inflation important?
1: So inflation really matters to investors in two ways. And the first way is that as people's inflation expectations change as what they expect for the future evolves, that impacts how different assets move. So you're going to have different portfolio results in an inflationary environment than a non-inflationary environment. You're typically going to have worse portfolio results in an inflationary environment for a lot of the assets that people rely on. And that's why for people who are sensitive to it, you uh you really should consider having inflation protection in your portfolio to help mitigate that in those circumstances and the other can i
0: make a di- let me just stop you let me make a distinction here so you said you'll have worse portfolio results in an inflationary environment i want to just dissect that for one second does that mean on a nominal or real basis and just to define that Nominals, how much money is in the portfolio, like the literally, like how, how many dollars you see real is what it's worth to you, what you can purchase with it. So when you say worth worse results, do you mean nominally and real or just on an after inflation basis?
1: On an after inflation basis. And that's a great distinction that you made, Mark, because uh, you can have results that actually look pretty nice on a nominal basis or before inflation basis, which is if you look at stocks in the 1970s, it looks like they doubled. Uh, during that time frame, But if you look at stocks on an after inflation basis, from 1967 to 1982, they went nowhere. And so it's really that after inflation uh, that matters. So this is this phenomenon where you talk about the late 70s,
0: where even though the portfolio may have just used a number doubled, people aren't doubly as wealthy because their mortgage now costs them 12%, right? So the, the cost of eggs and bread has gone up a bunch. So even though they may have twice as much money, it's not going any further than
1: it was before. Exactly. And so that's the, I, I said there are two ways that inflation affects people and that's the second way. So Got it. impact one is what it does to the asset prices in your portfolio. Impact two is just that whatever the dollar value that you see that those dollars don't go as far. And so it impacts your purchasing power and, uh, and deteriorates how much real money you have left at the end of the day, how much real goods you can go out and buy. Because ultimately money is about the ability to
0: purchase goods and services, right? So if if more money doesn't get you more goods and services, you're really just standing in place. Now, let me pivot this to your team and you think a lot about inflation and what inflation is gonna look like in the future. How hard is inflation to forecast?
1: It is, I think it's, and this is my personal view. I think it is one of the hardest macroeconomic variables to forecast. Like forecasts in general tend to be pretty bad across kind of every area of forecasting. Econ forecasts in general tend to be probably worse than your typical forecast, and <laughs> inflation forecasts, more than other econ forecasts, tend to be the worst. And there are all sorts of reasons for it, uh, which have to do with you know the complexity of the markets, limited data, and uh, and not really knowing what price elasticities and supply and demand elasticities look like for different goods. But it's hard. It's really hard. We don't have good models for it. So, so better or worse than getting the weather right next week? <laughs> I would say, yeah, uh, definitely. I would trust a weather forecast a week out much more than an inflation <laughs> forecast six months out. Yeah. So, so, you talked about the,
0: the impact of inflation. Are there investors, clients, people? Who are more sensitive to inflation? I don't mean emotionally, but actually financially sensitive to inflation than others. And and why might that be?
1: Yeah, there absolutely are. And this is a big dividing line that we've tried to make in our work because for some clients, it's really important and having inflation protection makes a ton of sense. The cost benefit just skews massively in favor of putting on inflation protection. But for other clients, it's really less valuable. Uh, So if you take, a client who is younger, who's more in stocks than bonds, that client is going to be less sensitive than a retiree who's mostly in bonds and less stocks. And as a result, the inflation protection for that younger investor isn't going to really leave them in a better place 30, 40, 50 years from now. It marginally helps them, but not nearly the magnitude that you would see for an inflation-sensitive investor. Are there two or three inputs,
0: accesses, that, that indicate to you, to me, to the person listening, whether they're actually sensitive to inflation or not. Because I, I think everyone would say, well, if I go to the grocery store and my bill went up by a hundred bucks, I'm, I'm sensitive to inflation. I don't think that's the way you're thinking about it. So are there two or three metrics that are helpful in how you define who is actually sensitive to inflation?
1: Yeah, the first one, most important one would be your asset allocation, how much exposure you have to bonds. So that matters more than anything else that we've at. That. That? It's primarily driven by the fact that bonds, nominal bonds pay a fixed rate of interest. And so they, more than un- any other asset, they do badly in an inflationary environment. They're the ones that are hurt the most, which means that if you're particularly exposed to them, you are particularly inflation sensitive. And so let's just, let's just draw that out, right? So if you buy a
0: bond, a twenty-year bond, and it pays four percent, just to make this easy, and five years from now, you know, mortgage rates are ten, and and inflation is eight. I'm just making up numbers here. The five percent you're getting on your bonds is not helpful when you're only earning five, and the cost of everything else is going up by eight to ten. Right? You're you're now losing, and you're in that deal for twenty years.
1: Exactly. And you know, with the, with the bond rates where they are right now and inflation expectations where they are now, obviously inflation expectations are just an expectation. That's not the inflation we're necessarily going to see for the next 10 years. But if you take a 10-year treasury bond right now, you actually earn a negative yield on that on a real basis, on an after inflation basis. If if inflation comes out at a you know, call it two and a quarter percent, which is where, S, where expectations in the market have it. If it comes out at two and a quarter percent and you're earning one and a half percent on your treasury bond, you're locking in a 75 basis point. So 0.75 percentage point uh, annualized loss in purchasing power on that. So the first category or the first
0: metric is how much exposure does someone have to bonds? I I also assume cash would, would be part of that, right?
1: Yeah. And, you know, we we do try to encourage people to have their Capital in the markets in some way, shape, or form, uh, just because cash returns are fairly low and timing the market tends to be very hard. So, if you, unless you have a an upcoming liability or an upcoming expense that you know you need to uh, have cash for, unless you have uh, you know have an emergency fund that you need to have that cash in, the the. General advice is that that cash is going to be better off deployed into some asset, whether it's stocks, bonds, alternative assets. It's typically going to do better off over the long term in those things than sitting in your bank account, especially better than sitting in your bank account and looking for an opportune moment to deploy it. Because people tend to be very bad at timing the market and actually putting that cash to work. Got it.
0: So the the first metric is how much allocation do you have to bonds versus stock? The second, in the paper I've read by you, is this notion of human capital. Can you talk a bit about what that means?
1: Yeah. So basically, that's whether you're working or not. So if you are a retiree, you don't have the ability to convert your human capital into financial capital. If you're someone like you or me, and we've probably got another few decades of work ahead of us, our salaries are going to re-rate with inflation. And so that's a built-in hedge in terms of our future savings ability. It It will automatically adjust to inflation over time. And the thing is, though, that that matters to a degree, but it matters less than that bond allocation. So it's pretty common for people like us who are younger to be equity heavy in our portfolios. And in that case, we are going to be less inflation sensitive. Not so much because we're working, partly because of it, but mostly because of that equity uh, positioning. But if someone like you or me had a really low risk tolerance and just wasn't comfortable putting money into stocks and things like that, and because of that, they had a high bond allocation, that person would still be very inflation sensitive, similar to a retiree with a high bond allocation. So it's, it's still that first driver, the asset allocation, the bond weight that matters most but then that next mitigating factor is is how much money you still remain to earn in the future. And and in practical terms, right,
0: if you're working and inflation skyrockets and the cost of everything goes up, as an employee or collectively the labor force is going to demand higher wages to keep up with those prices. So you're when you're working, you have some offset to this price increase with a wage increase. In retirement, that's gone, but still not as important as the bond allocation. Exactly. That's exactly right. And then the third input that you talked about in terms of how sensitive to inflation. So we've got the bond allocation. Are you working? How much longer are you going
1: to be working? Is this notion of spending? How does that figure into the equation? So spending is at the bottom of this priority list and, uh, and, it's down there because unlike the others, it's the only one that is actually a lever in and of itself. You can't, you know, you can't really change your asset allocation too dramatically unless you somehow become more risk tolerant or less risk tolerant. You can't, you can't really change how long you plan to work. You can to an extent, but not that much. Whereas spending, there is perhaps more flexibility there. So for some people if they don't want to cut down on spending, putting inflation protection in their portfolio can really help mitigate some of the hostile market environments. It's when you're spending and you have a hostile market environment and you're spending out of a deteriorating market, That that's when things go really badly. So you can mitigate that by putting in inflation protection or you can mitigate that by reducing spending. And for a lot of people, it's just easier to put inflation protection in than it is to reduce spending. For other people though, They might see cutting back on their spending plans as lower hanging fruit than putting inflation protection into their portfolio. That's that's more of a personal decision and it'll vary more from one person to another.
0: So that's an important point. You you framed which is the most impactful from a quantitative perspective. In my work with clients, some people might say, I can't move on my spending, but I I love my work. I'd work another five, six, seven, eight years. There are other people who would say, it's not really about my spending. I just really don't want to work anymore, right? Health reasons, priorities, what what have you. Um, There are others who say, I could take more risk in my portfolio if it's going to protect me and allow me to retire sooner or spend X level. So I think the way you frame this in in like three levers allows the, the investor or the retiree or just someone going through their own life plan to think about, which of these can I push on more and still get the peace of mind I want? Now, that said, in, from an implementation perspective, Chris, how do, you, how do you build inflation into a portfolio?
1: So, again, it'll matter more for some people than it does for others. But for the ones who are particularly sensitive to it, who are particularly worried about it, there are a few types of assets that make a lot of sense. So we talked about that sensitivity being driven by bonds. So people who are sensitive to inflation, who want this protection, they're likely to be overweight nominal bonds. Uh, So call it typical treasuries, typical municipal bonds, typical corporate bonds, bonds that don't have inflation protection baked into them already. And so the first... Uh, the first line of defense, especially for those people who are sensitive because of their bond holdings, is to add inflation protection to the bonds. And you can do that in one of two ways. It depends on your tax status. If you're a high tax person, then you're going to want to do that through inflation swaps. So we have a strategy where we will combine municipal bonds and inflation swaps. And inflation swaps are basically bets with other investors. And they pay out depending on how inflation comes in relative to what rate you set it at at the beginning, and so if inflation comes, if we're if we're buying those swaps, and inflation comes in higher than expected, we are going to collect cash. And if the other, if it goes the other way, and inflation comes in less than we expected and less than we protected against, then we have to pay the counterparty cash. But if you add that element to a municipal portfolio, you get that combination of yield. And you get that combination of safety and you add on top of it, that inflation protection. For clients who are less tax sensitive or who are tax exempt, you can do basically the same thing, but with treasuries uh, and with corporate bonds. And so in the treasury market, you have treasury inflation protected securities tips. Uh, You also have municipal uh, MIPS, so municipal inflation protected securities. Uh, But for uh, for these tax, tax exempt clients or low tax clients, because tips are not a very tax efficient asset. It doesn't make sense to use them in a portfolio of a higher tax client, but for a tax exempt or low tax client, they can, they can offer that. uh, They can offer that inflation protection along with a lot more liquidity. I think the way to think about it is
0: one, there's a solution out there on the bond side Two, it. Layman's view. It's it's, um, kind of like buying insurance on your bonds, right? Not technically insurance, but insurance against inflation in the bond portfolio. Is that a a reasonably fair way to think about
1: it? Yeah, that's definitely the right way to think about it. And if you look at the returns of nominal bonds versus real bonds, nominal bonds, unsurprisingly, they do very badly in inflationary environments, and they do quite well in environments where inflation expectations are falling. And there's a relative give up against uh, against real bonds in those environments. But real bonds, if you just look at them across all market environments, they tend to be very consistent because they pay you a fixed return and they adjust for that biggest risk to that fixed return, which is inflation. So they just give you a very steady, reliable return across all market environments. Now, we can't talk about inflation
0: and portfolios without me bringing up the question of, is gold the the, the answer?
1: So we would say that gold is not the answer, at least not to the inflation question. Uh, People frequently think of gold immediately when they think about inflation. And a lot of that just ties back to the fact that for centuries, millennia even, gold was the backing of the monetary system from country to country and civilization to civilization. So there's this perception that gold has this value as an inflation hedge. But in reality, it's actually quite unreliable. It works really, really well some of the time. It does not work a lot of the time. And so in the 1980s and 1990s, there were periods where inflation expectations were rising pretty significantly. And gold would be down 20 percent or it would be down 50 percent. And if that was your hedge against inflation and that was down 20 to 50%, that did not work really well. That, that as insurance was like having insurance that doesn't pay out when you file your claim, which is why we don't, we don't think you want to lean entirely into gold as your only inflation defense. It, it can be a part of it. And it's worth mentioning that gold actually works historically. It's tended to be a really good disaster hedge. When everything is hitting the fan, people go out in fear and they search for high quality, high safety assets. And those assets tend to be U.S. treasuries and gold. So it does have value in the context of a portfolio as that disaster case tail hedge. But it is not, it is not as good as an inflation hedge.
0: You mentioned inflation expectations today, and I didn't follow up. As, as we move towards the end of this podcast, I, I have to ask a few questions on this. Um, tell me about inflation expectations today and, and maybe what Bernstein's outlook is as compared to those expectations.
1: So expectations today are pretty decently in line with the Federal Reserve's idea that this is a pretty transitory bout of inflation that we're seeing right now. And we do worry longer term. That's part of why we're writing this, uh, this white paper and putting out a bunch of other content on inflation and trying to make sure that people who are sensitive to it have protection because we do think that over the longer term, the risks of a higher inflation environment are higher now than they've been in recent decades. But in terms of just the current period, we do think that, it's likely that this will be transitory. It's going to be bigger and it's going to last longer than a lot of people, including the Fed, thought going into it. But if you look at what's been driving it, it's come down to three key issues, one of which is semiconductor computer chip supplies and the shortages there that are then rippling through the supply chains of all other goods, especially cars. That's the one that's most pronounced and gets the most attention. Two is the supply chain shocks where you have all these ships that can't land at the they can't dock in Los Angeles and Long Beach to unload their cargo and then when they do unload the cargo and they get that onto the rails to ship it across the country you've got empty containers that are sitting for like 2 weeks whereas normally they would sit for like 3 days before going back the other way and when they go back the other way they're going back empty instead of full so the supply chain in terms of shipping and logistics both across oceans by air by ground all that just Truck. needs to resynchronize. Yeah, tr- trucking, rails, there, there are short, or not shortages as much as just real mismatches between supply and demand. The containers are not where they need to be. The ships are not where they need to be. And the truckers, incidentally, are not where they need to be. That's part of it. Um, so that that's that will take time to work out. And then the final one is labor, which goes back to this idea of the trucker shortage too. There have been three things weighing on labor. It's the enhanced unemployment benefits that have rolled off, that were part of the, the stimulus packages to protect and backstop the economy through the worst of COVID. But those are gone now. There's the fear, the safety concerns about going back to work. But those are starting to fade. You know, we're seeing the Delta wave has crested in the U.S. and around the world, and we're starting to go into the decline. who knows if another wave is coming, but that should help people get more comfortable going back to work. And then the last one is childcare. People with kids at home weren't able to send them to school, weren't able to send them to daycare. And now schools are back to in-person classes, daycares are getting back to more uh, normal capacity. And so that means those caregivers at home can go back to normal jobs. So we do expect that in the coming months, the coming quarters, that all three of those factors, the chips, the shipping, and the labor markets, all those things should start to ease, and it should get harder to see inflation in 2022 and 2023 that's at the same rate, same pace of change as we've had so far this year. So that's that's our more near-term, medium-term view. But longer term, we do still see risks of inflation, and that's because you can't really predict inflation and you need to hedge against it on a more permanent basis, a more strategic basis in your portfolio. That's why we're really, for inflation-sensitive clients, that's why we're saying we think that it's valuable for them to have that protection against that type of inflation, which could be coming down the road.
0: Chris, this was super informative, and and with those comments, it makes me think about two topics or, or two maybe takeaways. One, anything it feels like that you look in the market, the economy, the world today, you can't forget you're looking at, you have to look at it through the lens of Delta or, or COVID and what the impact is today and what it was over the last almost now two years. And if you forget that we went through uh, uh, and are in a pandemic, and the whole global economy basically shut down, I think it 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 sort of misses the story, right? The, the governing fact in almost everything we should be thinking about is there is slash was a pandemic and that's where we where we are today. I think we can't forget that as we look basically through anything, whether it's budget deficits or supply chain, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the second thing as we take that longer view, which I think you touched on, I think it's really important is that this discussion about inflation is not just about our or your outlook today or for the next six or 12 months. It's really, yes, that's relevant. And yes, there's more risk to inflation today, but the way to think about one's exposure to inflation is really about those, those three inputs. What's my asset allocation? What's my earning slash retirement plan? What's my spending? And that tells me whether or not I should have exposure to inflation regardless of what one's forecast is for inflation in the near term. Is that a a fair way to, to sum up how to think about broad spectrum inflation?
1: Yeah, I think that does a great job of summing up both where we are just in terms of this really unusual cycle, as well as where we're standing longer term and how we see it being prudent to manage those risks for the longer term. Chris, this was super helpful. Thank you so much for joining. Hey, uh, thanks again for having me, Mark. Anytime.
0: To our listeners later this month, we'll do our third quarter review on where we are in markets. And, And as I've ended talking about Delta, you know, you think about this podcast over the last year, year and a half, there's, there's, it was so influenced by COVID and whether it was the restaurant industry, healthcare. So it's almost interesting to look at the library of this podcast and say, oh, oh, oh wow, right? The, 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 the discussion about economics and personal finance really has been shaped by COVID for the, the last year and a half. But to our listeners, feel free to email me at mark.penziner at bernstein.com or call me at 212 969 6655 for any questions or comments on this podcast or any other related topic. Chris made mention to a, podca- uh, to a white paper his team has written. That's a deep dive on inflation. So if that's of interest to you, please reach out to me and and we can send that along. And make sure to like us or review this podcast wherever you listen to it. Until next time.